0: Welcome to The Code, your guide to health and human performance. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Fix from PhysioRoom, a performance-based rehab facility here in Denver. On this podcast, we're gonna explore the key areas of your life that impact your overall health and wellness, from sleep hygiene and stress management, to nutrition, movement, relationships, and more. We bring you conversations with industry experts and top performers to share strategies they have for cracking the code on health and human performance. Now let's get to today's show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Code. Again, this is Dr. Andrew Fix, your host with PhysioRoom. Today on the show, we're going to interview Sarah Murphy. She's a neurofeedback specialist with Brain Code Centers. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for being well, here. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, what I would love you to do is, um, as a neurofeedback specialist, we're going to get into like your profession and what you do here in a minute. But will you just give the listeners and myself, just a brief overview of what your, your background is, how you got here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I have been in the neurofeedback world for about five years, um, by way of luck. Um, <laughs> honestly, um, I really just met the owner of raincoat centers and her and I hit it off. And she was just like, you're going to be a neurofeedback specialist. And I was like, no way. And sure enough, uh, not even a month later, I kind of fell into the world of neurofeedback and immersed myself and just fell deeply in love with the changes that we can get in the brain through an electrical level. Um from there I immersed myself in neuro classes, anatomy, psychology, I did didactics, I did um any form of education relating to the brain and felt fell in love with neurofeedback and started in the addiction and recovery space. Mm-hmm. Um, Was in that space for about a year. Uh, That was a tough space because you're dealing a lot with uh, pharmaceuticals being individuals being over medicated. Uh, so, you're fighting against these medications in a lot of ways. So, that was like I got thrown into a tornado in that space of my life. Um, from there, I went to a clinic that uh, managed ADHD and autism, uh, mm-hmm. anxiety, and depression. So, I got really good at manage or retraining the brain from those mental illnesses. Uh, then, I found Resilience Code and found my niche of uh, peak performance. Uh, helping people manage stress, uh, helping people manage uh, sleep disorders or any kind of sleep inconsistencies into accessing flow state and allowing for better peak performance. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Well, I think, you know, with you sharing that background, there's a little bit to unpack there, but for, um, for people that don't know, um, and even for my benefit, would you say, explain what exactly neurofeedback is?
1: Yeah. So neurofeedback, well, first and foremost, we have step one, which is a measurement of the electrical output of the brain. Mm -hmm. Neurofeedback is the training of that electrical output. Right. So right, once right. we get the brain map, which is a QEG, which is the measurement of the brain's electrical output, we then have a roadmap to design custom protocols for clients uh, to retrain their brain through the form of nerve feedback. OK, so retraining the electrical output is. Not rocket science, it's operant conditioning, right? It's Pavlov and the dog. You tell the dog to sit, you give it a treat, right? The brain has learned everything and knows to date from our senses, right? Mm -hmm. So we are retraining the brain through auditory, visual, and sometimes tactile rewards, um, over repetition of neurofeedback of retraining these areas of localization, the brain starts to learn new habits mm-hmm. and the electrical output start starts to have some resilience to it, some flexibility. Um, and then you notice all of these mental illness, quote unquote, um, I symptoms that are showing up for a client start to dissipate. Yeah. Um, do we, are we good at getting anxiety from being at a 10 to oh? Zero, never gonna happen ever, ever again. Uh, No, neurofeedback can't do that, but we can get the brain from going from a ten to one or two, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. from that one or two, when the when the client goes from zero to one hundred really quick, they don't go to a ten anymore; they go to a three. Yeah, right.
0: You're sort of changing the scale a little bit, from what it sounds like. Um, Pavlov and the dog. I remember those classes in Mm -hmm. uh, psychology in college, and um, you know, I remember learning about those things, and then at the time when I was in school and not really thinking too much of it, like, you know, Oh yeah, this makes sense. Understanding how how we get conditioned to certain, um, I like to use the word consequences or rewards, you know, consequences can be positive or negative. But, um, but now in my daily life, I I see those things, right. Mm -hmm. your, your phone buzzes in your pocket and you're just like wondering, Oh, is this somebody liked my photo on Instagram or or whatever it might be. So Sarah, before you got into, uh, neurofeedback with brain code centers, Mm What were you doing before?
1: Oh my gosh, I went to school for interior design, believe it or interior not. Interior design. <laughs> um, so I went to the University of Nebraska for interior design. Mm-hmm. I moved out to Colorado from Nebraska, obviously. I moved out to Colorado and essentially got my dream job um, scraping old bungalow homes in DU and building multi million dollar homes on top of it. Um, I quickly learned that that was not my passion. <laughs> um, personally, I desire to help people. And mm-hmm. in the scope of interior design, I, I wasn't accessing that. Can someone else access the ability to have passion behind that? Absolutely. Yeah. I wasn't able to do that. And it was a conversation with my boss and he was just like, you're not happy. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he was mm-hmm. like, okay. Um, so I ended up finding my best friend from interior design school. She, she flew out here to meet my boss. And I was like, you're going to take my job.
0: <laughs> here you go. You can so she it.
1: took my job. And essentially that's when I got into personal training. I got into nutrition. took every single certification you possibly could behind that was an extreme weight loss coach built up a few mlm companies sold them all um, at the point where i met rachel Ragsdale, so i met rachel who owns brain code centers Mm -hmm. and i was like i'm jumping yeah like there's a cliff here and i am just gonna trust that these wings are gonna catch me
0: sounds like you uh you just found yourself in the Mm -hmm. right place at the right time to at the right time in your life to like be confident, making the switch and making Boy. the jump. Um, you know, something that you mentioned, you know, you went to school for a certain thing, you started working in that field, but it wasn't fueling your passion. Like mm-hmm. you, you found out after the fact that this just isn't, um, what I'm passionate about. Who knows, maybe we'll make a separate episode about that in the future, like the code to happiness or something of doing what you're passionate about every single day. Um, cause that's, what's going to lead, lead to happiness. Um, So what I would love to to sort of circle back to as we start talking and diving in a little bit more on um, neurofeedback, you mentioned at the beginning of the process, there has to be an assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know I've heard you um, in previous conversations mention the term brain map um, Mm -hmm. numerous times before, but um, what are some common things that you see with people that you work with at brain code centers when you do this assessment? And then um, I guess just start to lay out for us sort of the. Brief overview of the process of how you then go from finding the information in the assessment. And then what do you do from a treatment standpoint?
1: Oh, that's a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, I know there's a lot there. <laughs> I'm here for it. Um, okay, so what are some common things that we see in a QEG? Common things that we're seeing a lot these days is overactivity in the sensory lobe. Mm-hmm. Um You know, whether this be due to COVID and people being in front of screens or whether due to just technology in general, our sensory lobes are hyperactive, to say the least. Um, This has a lot of symptoms relating to, it can relate to social anxiety. It can relate to performance anxiety. It can be just an inability to completely shut down and fall asleep effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, This area of our brain is very, um, it's very important and vital to our reticular activation system. Um, And when that is off, our homeostasis of our brain is not going to be doing what it can, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. by retraining this area of the brain alone, a lot of times we do see the client's mental health shift almost within the first 10 to 12 sessions. Um so that alone creating the homeostasis in the reticulating activation system is something that we definitely see often. Um, another thing we see is gonna be um underactivity in the alpha band. Underactivity in the alpha band is can show up as introversion. Mm -hmm. Um, But when someone has this underactivity in their alpha band, they may not manage stress as well as someone that has overactivity. Mm -hmm. Um, So if trauma comes into someone's life that has underactivity, it might hold on tighter. It might have a a tighter grip on their life Um, underactivity in the alpha band can inhibit sleep. Uh, It causes some withdrawal symptoms or can create some withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, But the biggest one being sleep, right? If our brains aren't sleeping, then what are we recovering from? What are we learning every single day? Because if you think about when we were an infant, infants live 80% of their life in a Delta band, which is responsible for sleep, which is a measurement we do in the brain map. Okay. So if we're living 80% of our life as an infant in this Delta band of sleep, we're bringing our hand, finger to our mouth, and we're learning how to suck. And oh gosh, that's soothing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, We're learning how to eat. We're learning how to make mom or dad smile, um, all of these things. And then what happens? They fall asleep, right? Because their brain needs to repair from what they just learned. And then they wake back up, right? And then they fall back asleep after they learn something new. Mm -hmm. Well, as adults, we oftentimes ignore our sleep. Right. So when we are closing or when we're winding down for the end of the night, we're not giving ourselves credit for everything we absorbed throughout the day. Sure. Right. So we're not we're saying, oh, I need to push harder. I have two more hours of work I need to do when that's not necessarily the case. Your brain has a lot of work to do, but it needs to do it while you're sleeping. So that's another thing that we're seeing in in QEGs to date is that the brain isn't effectively sleeping And because of that, the brain's not repairing from daily traumas. It's not repairing from daily stress. It's not repairing from the sensory overload that we're experiencing. Um, And when the brain is in a constant state of being hyperwound because it's not caught up on sleep, it goes into this fight or flight aspect. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that's when we see some of the mental illnesses that we see today, which is going to be, you know, rumination, overthinking, anxiety, depression, um, PTSD. So, I mean, we can go down the gauntlet on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what you're saying makes perfect sense to me without knowing all of the um, you know, the science and understanding the process as you're kind of laying it out. I, I, again, I think back to like when I was in school learning things in, in neuro class in physical therapy school. And I never found myself being one of those like stay up late at night cramming for an exam type of person, or like stay up till three in the morning studying for this 8am exam the next day, the next day, because I understood, you know, that's not how my brain is going to absorb the information the best. If I don't study ahead of time and sleep and get the repair process to like ingrain that learning, mm-hmm. um, one I wasn't going to remember that long-term. I would be able to maybe regurgitate it on the test, but then it does me no good a few weeks later because I wouldn't actually have that information. And, uh, and two, I just would feel a performance uh, benefit if I, if I got sleep rather than stay up trying to study and re review the information more and more. Um, and then, you know, in my day-to-day profession, in my field as a physical therapist, I absolutely can see, you know, the prior physical traumas or injuries that people have had their body holds on to those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you've had an old ACL injury on your knee, well, there are going to be mechanical things that are different about your knee, even 20 years in the future, because of that prior injury. And what you're saying is our brain does the exact same thing. Our brain holds on to past stressors, past traumas, things that have happened in our life. um, And they don't just like go away.
1: Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you were an outlier by identifying sleep in the collegiate time in your life for sure. I mean, there are many times I remember sleeping underneath my studio desk at the University of Nebraska. Uh, so, well, I'm not saying I got enough sleep, but uh,
0: I'm I'm sure I got less sleep than I do now, and um, I was not putting as much of an emphasis on it. But I just remember I was never one of these like I need to stay up all night to study. So that I can do well on this test. Uh, I think I tried that once. That test didn't go well. And I said, well, I'm never doing that again. Um, so, and you know, sometimes in college, you have uh, noisy neighbors. It's a little hard to, to sleep when you want yes, to. Yes.
1: But that scenario you just pointed out is a perfect scenario of <clears throat> and the dog. Mm-hmm. right? Like you stayed up all night, you tried something different, you took the test, and what was the reward or inhibit?
0: It was negative. Yes. Yeah. Bad right. grade. <laughs> so then you chose
1: to create a different behavioral pattern related mm-hmm. to it. Right. And that just goes back to neurofeedback and what we're doing through the senses in a very non-invasive way.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, that speaks to uh, part of my passion right there. You had talked about, um, you just said non-invasive. Well, in your previous work, you talked about sometimes battling medications that people are on and having to deal with, you know, side effects and that affecting your work you know, I typically think about that more from like a nutrition or a a wellness standpoint, people are trying to improve their health, but they're on all of these medications with Mm -hmm. all of these nasty side effects. Um, do you typically see when you get the opportunity to work with people, maybe they're on a a host or a list of medications that as you're able to do some rewiring Mm -hmm. in the brain that they're able to rid, rid their routine of some of those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we as neurofeedback feedback specialists, we cannot um, communicate that they are need to come off of these pharmaceuticals. Right. right? right. Um, we are there to hold their hand. We are there to communicate with the prescribing doc. Um, we are there to show objective changes in their brain. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when someone's on a list or a host of pharmaceuticals, we will just really stress the importance of remapping often. Um, so that we can say, oh, my gosh, this is how your brain has changed. Now, you know, it may or may not be ready for this. Um, so, yeah, people do are able to come off of pharmaceuticals eventually with neurofeedback with the right help, with the right hand holding, and with the right therapist mm-hmm. that's willing to work with us. Yeah. Um, you know, notoriously, therapists are the only prescribing doc that can prescribe a pharmaceutical without having any data to support it. Um, You go to an MD, they're going to do blood work to change your hormones. You Mm -hmm. go to a hormone specialist, they're going to do blood work um, to see where your baseline is, where we do the baseline of the brain map with the QEG, and then Mm -hmm. we create protocols to train that. Um, But unfortunately, on the mental health side of things, they have a host of symptoms. And if you check the box on a lot of the things, they're going to say, okay, hey, here you go. Right. Um, instead of having some objective data to help them guide what they need to do and facilitate changes in.
0: Yeah. So what you're basically alluding to is a you know, test, treat, retest type of model, which mm-hmm. is exactly what I like to subscribe to. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever a client comes in to see me, no matter what visit this is along their plan of care, the very first thing that we do after we sort of catch up a little bit and talk about how they've been doing is, all right, let's do a quick reassessment to see where you're at today so Mm -hmm. that we know where to go from here. We don't just jump back into treatment based off where we left off before, because a lot of things have happened in that week or two weeks, however long it's been since we've seen that person the last time. And I love what you said about like, let's re-brain map, brain map, frequently so that we can see some data to support, hey, we're noticing some changes. this is how we can show that that's happening, mm-hmm. and then that information can be communicated with their physician. Maybe there's a medication change as a result of these these retests. Um And a lot of times in the you know the typical medical system that we see here in the United States, I don't think that always happens. I think you know maybe somebody goes into the physician at one point in their life and they're um, found to uh, have high blood pressure, they get diagnosed with hypertension, they get put on one or two blood pressure medications, how often do they get reassessed, you know, from a real baseline standpoint to to see, are you ever going to get off this medication or are you just, you're destined to be on that for the rest of your life and just keep going to Walgreens or CVS every couple months, refill your prescription and just stay on these medications. Rather than, you know, let's address the root cause of why this is happening in the first Mm -hmm. place. Let's reassess to see if we can get you back off of that thing. Um, So no, I... I could talk all day about this sort of topic. Yeah, but
1: this is what I love because this is what the podcast is for, right? To help people be their own advocate. Mm -hmm. Because if you walk into that 15, 20 minute appointment where you're prescribed a blood pressure medicine or something, you're like, hey doc, I've lost 30 pounds. I'm feeling great. I'm eating really clean. Like I'd like to assess the changes of my blood pressure medicine where a lot of times you walk into that space, you're not even getting eye contact from the doctor. Totally. Let alone being able to voice your own opinion about something. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times it's that it's that client care perspective of things so um just improving people's advocacy of self and that's what this podcast is all about so thank you for creating it
0: absolutely well and again thank you for being here today so let's talk a little bit more um, about what you do so we're sitting here in a facility resilience code um, so you talked about sort of what you do with brain code centers, how you got into, into brain code centers from the interior design side of things. What is your role here with resilience code? Um, and if I understand this correctly, it's a little bit more, you know, taking things up a notch and working on peak performance. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So everything that we just talked about in relation to brain code centers, it's really um, in that scope, we're going from mental illness to, to a space of mental health. Right. We're here. We're going from mental health to a space of mental wealth. Right. How can I optimally perform Mm -hmm. for the longevity of my life? Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, a lot of the people that we see here are high level CEOs, C-suite execs, um, professional athletes, and they want to not only live, but they want to thrive the rest of their life. And so our goal here, Resilience Code, is to cater to that peak performance mindset, to support, to clarify, to improve clients' ability to fall asleep and stay asleep deeply, to get effective sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, We use things like the Whoop band that I see you have on right now to do data analysis, to see, hey, is what we're doing here actually helping you? Cool, it is, or it's not. Okay, how can we change or adapt. Um, but a lot of the times with neurofeedback, what we're focusing on is like I said, sleep, stress management is a big one. Number one killer. Right. Um, and then the third one that we see often here is going to be concussions. Uh, so concussions in the space of concussions, there's just a lot of, there's not, there's lacking There's a lot of lacking resources in that space sure. that don't allow people to know, what steps to take moving forward? Um, neurofeedback is an option in relation to concussions to help people overcome them, get mm-hmm. rid of the brain fog, the word finding issues, the early AM awakening, uh, or, or sometimes insomnia. Sure. Um, you know, for me, sometimes I stumble over words still from a concussion that I had 15 years ago. Yeah. Right? But that's usually my sign that I'm like, oh, I'm due for a neurofeedback session. Right. Um, but yeah, we we specialize in all three of those things. Uh Dr. Prismack, who owns the facility here and is the lead doctor. Uh, he works a lot with cases associated to limes, mold or any kind of any, anything that's like systemic inflammation or oxidative stress. Um, but for the most part, I would say 80% of the people that come through here are looking to step from that mental health space into a space of mental wealth.
0: Awesome. Well, and I kind of love that sort of path that you just laid out there, you know, part of the part of the puzzle is going from mental illness or a state of just not performing anywhere near what you would consider optimal to mental health. Mm -hmm. Like let's get the the basics handled first. Like let's get the foundation laid so that you can be performing at a good level. But then if you want to crank it up a notch, let's go from mental health to mental wealth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with a lot of the clients that we get to work with or, you know, folks that we may see on television or something, you mentioned C-suite execs, this is exactly what you want to do, right? You have to be performing at a peak level in order to get out of your situation, what you're hoping to get out of it. Like how can um you know we just we just recently watched the Super Bowl. How can Matthew Stafford with all of the pressure that he's under be able to perform at an optimal level when all the lights are on him in LA? Mm-hmm. You know everyone's wondering, hey, is he going to be able to perform at a high level in this Super Bowl game or is he going to crumble under the pressure type yeah. of a thing?
1: And we know that from looking at a brain map, right? right? We know what kind of player is sitting in front of us when we're doing a brain map, right? Can they step on into a field dynamic with all of the sensory overload, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever listened to Tom Brady talk about um, going to the Kansas City Chiefs stadium, but he hates it because it's loud. loud.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've been in that stadium. It's loud.
1: It's Mm -hmm. overwhelming, you know, and a lot of times he plays his best when it's snowing. Right. And that's a sensory thing. Sure. Right. It allows him to close down in his bubble. So our goal with clients like that, we say, okay, we can see how your brain is op- operating now. This is the end goal. We mm-hmm. want you being able to play in a Super Bowl at the loudest stadium that you've ever seen and still be able to access your bubble. Absolutely. Because right? that bubble is the flow state, right? That bubble is the enjoyment of the game. That mm-hmm. bubble is hopefully in the in a best case scenario, injury free. Yeah. Right. Because if someone is living in an anxious space during a game, they are more prone to injury. Right. Oh, so sure. they are making decisions that are too fast mm-hmm. Right. for their brain or their body to adapt to. Um. So we've got to get the brain working in a way that's cohesive to what the body needs and external elements as well.
0: Yeah. And I've even seen this, Um, you know, kind of not necessarily the opposite of what you're saying, but like the other way where you mentioned the flow state and i want to ask you a question here in just a minute to just describe like what that is and like how you would describe the flow state but you know you mentioned if you're performing at an optimal level typically that's going to be like an injury free type of performance as well a lot of times when you disrupt whatever that like optimum level of performance is that's when we see injuries do happen so like for example what i'm getting at is sometimes when people are trying to play or compete but like have their foot off the gas just a little bit mm-hmm. and they're trying to play to not get hurt instead of just play to try to perform at a good level. That's when we see injuries happen, particularly like the little ones, like maybe you sprain your ankle or, you know, you're trying to go half speed and you, uh, a receiver is trying to catch a ball and they jam their finger. Cause they're just like, they're not tuned in fully to what they're doing. They're trying to be half speed. And, um, you know, sometimes just like, just play at your normal pace, your normal flow. Mm -hmm. And that's when, when things are just going to be nice and smooth.
1: Yeah. And that's the hesitation, right? Mm -hmm. It's the overthinking, right? And a lot of these athletes, they not only have their own internal perspective to, to have perspective around, But they also have their family sitting in the stands. They also have their coaches looking at them. They also have agents looking at them. They have paychecks coming in or maybe not coming in. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. They have a lot to bear when they go into play, right? So they are already ruminating external elements of the game, right? So my goal is always, always, always to get them flowing, right? And what I mean by flow to go into that a little bit more is to allow for their passion to show up in the game right? Because when you have passion, it does spark that flow state. When you have excitement, it's going to spark it as well. So that flow allows these guys to basically come in, see, or say, say they're, say it's a linebacker, right? And he's lined up and he's seeing the quarterback make some decisions, make a few changes, right? Is that linebacker in that moment, is he hesitating what to, to what he's seeing or is he communicating to the team what he's seeing? And is he making action, right? Right. Or is he hesitating, right? Because if he's hesitating, he's not going with his intuition and he's resisting flow, right? So we've got to get them to absorb that, to live in comfort of it. Yeah. But a lot of that's difficult because there's a control aspect to it, right? And when you're a professional athlete, you have to have a lot of control. Mm -hmm. You have to be disciplined. You have to be resilient. You have to have your ducks in order. Um. And when you, do it's rewarded Mm -hmm. right so that area of the brain is already rewarded for control right so we've got to get it to be flexible
0: because when it's
1: flexible you can access that flow so that you can make choices during the game as if you're you're playing with passion and not Mm -hmm. playing against the external elements of the game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone who has, you know, competed or whether it's athletic or not been in a situation where they can sort of picture themselves or imagine back to a time when they're feeling what you're describing knows what that flow state is. Most people probably have felt it at some point, but maybe not everybody. Um, I think back to, you know, I played collegiate football and ran track in college and that was a little different when I was playing football compared to running track one from like the, the crowd and the atmosphere standpoint, mm-hmm. much less people at a track meet, generally speaking, than mm-hmm. at, uh, at one of our football games. Um, and then the differences between, you know, positions that I've played where in high school and prior to high school, I was always the quarterback of our team, making a lot of decisions, being a lot more vocal, um, being the one that everybody sort of looks to, and then when I got to college, switched to play corner mm-hmm. where there was much, well, there was still vocalizing, communicating with the team, but largely speaking, I was like out there on an Island, sure. me with the receiver, we played a lot of man coverage and it was a very, it was like a very mental game of like, it's me versus this other guy. And, you know, we're going to be going against each other throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Um, little different atmosphere to put yourself in.
1: Yeah. But it was probably a good windup being in track and football. Because sure. in track, it's a very isolating, um, athletic, for lack of better words, uh, what am I trying to think of? Yeah. It's a team
0: sport, but it's very individualized. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, whether, even if you're on a relay,
1: mm-hmm.
0: well, if you're on a relay, you're still the only one of the the four people in that relay running at that moment in time until you pass off the baton or receive it from your, um, from your teammate, you're the only one on the track running for your team at that, mm-hmm. that moment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what you're basically mm-hmm. saying is like it's a team sport, but it, it's individual.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that dynamic of you playing in both of those spaces led up to your ability to probably perform as a corner. Um, but, yeah, it's very isolating. <laughs> especially yeah. going from being a quarterback where you're leading into a, a position. And we see this in wide receivers all the time, right? They're very um, they're isolated, but they're also very uh, what's the best way to put this? excitable, um outgoing, obnoxious.
0: Large personalities (laughs) a lot of times uh with with wide receivers.
1: Right. right? And and that's what makes the great the game great. And that's what makes our ability to watch them because they do. They have to go back and forth from that that excitability to that calm.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Like
1: how can I beat this guy? How can I how can I do this for 65 plays and maybe only get one ball thrown towards me. Right. So it's just every single position is very, very different. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. I wasn't a football fan prior to working here, (laughs) but I've gotten really good at understanding the game.
0: (laughs) It's funny how that works. Um, it's like, it's like you're saying repetition, uh, Mm -hmm. gets you a little bit better at things. Usually, Mm -hmm. usually that's the case. Um, as long as you're intentional about the practice that you're doing. I remember our, our coach in college would always say the phrase, um, You know, people, people will say like practice makes perfect. And I don't necessarily believe in that because if you're just going through the motions and not really intentional about the practice that you're doing, I don't necessarily think that that's Mm -hmm. going to translate to high performance. But what our coach would always reiterate to us is, um, perfect practice prevents piss poor performance, Mm -hmm. right? If you are going through the steps, very intentional in practice, and you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do that generally speaking is going to prevent you from performing poorly when the game day shows yeah. up
1: a cool way to look at this too, because of like what we just spoke about with flow and passion mm-hmm. is I have a player and I love his mindset because he always says, to, I was like, Oh, how was practice day? And he'll say, I don't practice. I play. Mm-hmm. He goes, I go to play football. I, and I was like, even on Sundays, that's what he says. I go to play football. Right. Right. Because that play sparks that passion, it sure. sparks that purpose of, Sparks that fun, mm-hmm. right? And when you're having fun playing something, that's that creative outlet that allows you to access the flow state in the first place. Um and yeah, so if I mean, you're if, having fun, I mean
0: <laughs> exactly. And in, in every professional athlete, I know we're talking about a lot about football, but any professional athlete, that's why they got into it in the first place, mm-hmm. right? When they were a child in most cases, or in high school, or whenever they started that. Um more than likely the main reason that they started doing it is because they enjoyed it. It was fun. Then they probably found out, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this thing. Maybe it's because they were having fun while they were doing it.
1: Well, they got a lot of conditioning, right? So Mm -hmm. they got a lot of feedback saying, you're really good at this. You're great at this. People were watching them. They got rewarded. They got attention. They Mm -hmm. got eventually a paycheck, right? Um, And eventually that paycheck came into shows up in fame, right? So this constant dopamine reward, mm-hmm. um, which is operant conditioning, uh, has allowed them to thrive in a space and do better in a space in which they may not have, right? So that's the difference between a player that has the talent and a player that has the passion, Yeah. right? Sometimes the passion, I mean, if you look at Tom Brady, he might be a perfect example of that. Sometimes the passion oh, supersedes the talent mm-hmm. um, and vice versa.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's something, um, that I want to ask you, and I kind of want to ask you this question in two parts, one thinking about it, you know, from an athlete standpoint, whether it's professional or not. Um, but also secondarily, you know, just thinking of anybody going through their daily life who encounters a setback or a big obstacle, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's, they lost a job, maybe they lost a loved one. Mm -hmm. Or from an athlete standpoint, maybe it's somebody who is performing at a high level and then they suffered a significant injury where they're going to have to miss a period of time. They're not sure if they're going to be able to get back to the same level of performance that they're accustomed to. Um, How have you seen in your practice with clients, you know, working with them through those challenging stages where you're performing, things are going well, all of a sudden the bottom falls out. And now we want to try to rebuild back to the point where we were or even past it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that last part of what you just said is key because it's it's not rebuilding, it's reconstructing. Mm-hmm. Right. And reconstruction a lot of times makes for a more sound structure. Right. So I would say the difference between like an athletic athlete going through this and just you or I going through a hard time in life um, where the bottom falls out is have a plan. Right. And mm-hmm. what do I see people when they don't have a plan? They get stuck in that space. They really do. If they think they have a plan and they're going through the motions, they're practicing. Um, a lot of times, I see it that, that progress is slower. Sure. Um, if they look at this as like an opportunity to reconstruct, to build mm-hmm. a skyscraper out of a five story building, then it goes into that space of play. Yeah. Right, and it's exciting. It's optimistic. Right. Who can I be? I don't. You know, the world is your oyster. There's Let's see. Let's yeah. see. Right. Um. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think that you know, there's the victim mentality, and there's not. Yeah. Right. If you want to build a skyscraper you have every opportunity to do that. If you want mm-hmm. to rebuild a five-story building, you have every opportunity to do that. If you don't want to rebuild, you have that opportunity as well. Yeah. Um, neurofeedback allows people to see the skyscraper and to reach for it if they want. Um, a lot of metaphors here. Yeah, no,
0: no, <laughs> I think that's great though. And I think you did kind of touch on that. What I basically heard you say in that in that response was, you know, when something happens how you're going to be able to reconstruct or come out of that at the end of the day kind of boils down to your mindset Mm -hmm. around the event, right? If it's an injury, it can be looked at as a devastating, you know, victim mentality of like, why did this happen to me? I'm never going to be able to get back to where I was, or it can be looked at as an opportunity to take a step back, figure out maybe what your imbalances are or your mechanical deficiencies Mm -hmm. work on those things so that this doesn't happen again, except for in, you know, a fluke circumstance injuries are going to happen from an athletic standpoint that you can't prevent. But usually from those situations, we end up finding other things that we can improve along the way. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know that definitely happened to me. Um, but, uh, I think the same is true for any person out there going through everyday life. When something happens, um, I remember my grandmother used to tell me, Andrew, everything happens for a reason. And I used to, when I was younger, really hate that phrase. Absolutely. And, um, I would, you know, I would think to myself, well, then what is the reason for this thing that really sucks right now? Yeah. Um, but the more that I have just kind of thought about the mindset of, you know, this event that's happening, you know, this, this obstacle that I'm facing is an opportunity to learn along the way and come out better on the other side mm-hmm. of this.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: but it all boils down to mindset. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. It does. Um, and a plan, Mm -hmm. right. Having a plan to put things in action to move forward. Right. Uh, I would say with, in the scope of neurofeedback, I see a lot of people trying to do it on their own. Um, our society in my, in my opinion really caters to people suffocating mm-hmm. themselves by trying to be it all to themselves Yeah, right? and we were put on this earth to be a community um so you know opening your arms and allowing people to see what's going on for you and mm-hmm. allowing them to allow yourself to be vulnerable but also allowing to yourself to ask for help
0: yeah um
1: that means you know like like these high level C-suite execs, like, do they have coaches? Yeah, they do. Do they have therapists? Yes, they do. Are they training Mm -hmm. their brain? Yes, they do. So just because you're sitting here with a mental illness doesn't mean that you can't have access to all of those things that a high-level CFO does. And what Mm -hmm. are you doing different than the high-level CFO? Right. You know, if you are in a state of mental illness and you're you're doing, you have a business coach, you have a therapist, you have a neurofeedback specialist, and the CFO is doing that same thing, who are you, what makes you different? Right, like eventually, will your skyscraper supersede theirs? Who yeah. knows, right? Yeah, so I think, it is mindset.
0: I think at the end of the day, no matter who we're talking about—professional athletes, high-level executives, um, you know, children, whatever—at yeah. the end of the day, we all have more things in common than we have different. Like mm-hmm. you said, what what's different about what one person's doing compared to another person? We all have the same basic needs, and I love that you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, community and relationships. That's one of the you know major topics that we want to continue to talk about on this show, and just because we find ourselves here in early 2022, two years essentially post when the COVID pandemic started, I think that's a big one that we have seen you know be a little bit more prevalent along the way. Is you know I get to work in a gym every day, and when that gym reopened from initially being closed, you could just tell the uh, excitement's not the word that I'm looking for, but just the joy. And the camaraderie that was present in the gym, when people were able to come back Mm -hmm. and be among the other people that they were used to being around their friends, maybe their family that they're going and participating with, um, that we just need that. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get that over, uh, you know, social, social media or other types of like digital platforms. It's tough to get that like real interaction that gives you that like relational and camaraderie type of feel.
1: And I think it has a lot to do with that dopamine reward, right? Because mm-hmm. we're we're getting those quick dopamine rewards from the buzzing of our phone, from the social media likes, from the who else watched my podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, we're not doing the work to access the, a healthier form of dopamine, which is, oh gosh, our neighbor found out they were sick yesterday. Let me make a casserole for them and bring it over. Yeah, Right? Like we're losing, we want to just make someone feel better by double clicking their photo that they posted on social right mm-hmm. and not actually showing effort or activity behind what they're that that person's needing yeah right showing up for people in a different way instead mm-hmm. of just a double click and that goes deeper into our brain into that dopamine circuitry right so yeah. we think that that's plenty for us to just double click a photo it's not yeah. like we need human connection yeah and that's you know is what it is. But as long, as long as we're all making an active choice to connect with people in our lives, I think that it's, I think we're, we're doing what we can.
0: Absolutely. Well, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, I enjoy recording these episodes in person with, uh, with the other individual that we're talking to you, of course, in this case, rather than across the screen, Yeah. because it's just not the same. It's not the same connection. Um, So to kind of summarize, Sarah, um, you know, a little bit of what you've talked about, you've talked about doing a brain map from a neurofeedback side of things or like doing an assessment, right. Having a test to give you a starting point to figure out where to go from there, doing some treatment and retesting along the way to make sure you're on the right path and seeing the changes objectively that you want to see change. You talked about, you know, having a plan Mm -hmm. for when, for when things inevitably will, will go wrong or just having a plan for how you hope to accomplish something. and then. you know, what would you say? I like to ask everybody this question. What would you say as it relates to what you do every day is your code to health and human performance or like your main suggestion that you could give somebody, if you could give them like one or two quick Um, tips, like what is your main suggestion that you would give someone on how they can optimize their performance from a mental standpoint?
1: Oh my gosh. Silence. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Sit in silence as much as you can. Um, be inquisitive, to so be curious. Whether that be looking or listening to podcasts that you wouldn't normally listen to, reading books that you wouldn't normally listen, normally listen to, um, trying different things. Um, and lastly, I would say you know neurofeedback obviously has been a game changer for me. So we'll just we'll just put that in as a highlighting element. But, um, the third thing I would say is community. Um, we've kind of touched on that today, but it is everything. Right. And if you are someone that desires physical touch, um, hugs, right. Like really making it a point to access what you need in the form Mm -hmm. of community, because what you're needing is probably what the person next to you is needing as well. Um, so, yeah, I would say those three things, That those are all going to adjust and boost dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, uh, all of the compounding neurochemicals of our brain that we need on a daily basis to mm-hmm. act as humans again.
0: Well, I love those three three points. And quite honestly, to be a little bit vulnerable myself, three things that over the course of my life, I've probably struggled with. Um, is finding space for quiet time, Mm -hmm. being really curious and just inquisitive of like, try to clear my head of all the other things that are going on and just listen to the person that's in front of me and be really interested in the answer that they're giving me to the questions that I've asked them, not thinking about the response that I'm going to say back, but just listen to their answer and digest that. And then, um, yeah, the community one, I think of those three things is probably the, the thing that I've found the easiest. Because I've always found myself on teams and I have a large family that I get along with and everything like that. But those are awesome tips. Um, So I know that you have a lot more information, knowledge, expertise that you can share with our listeners. So if everybody or anybody, excuse me, if anybody wants to find out more from you, learn more about neurofeedback, about brain code and or resilience code. Where can people find you? How can yeah. people get a hold of you online?
1: Yeah, so you can email me, Sarah at braincodecenters.com. Uh, we have two wonderful websites, myresiliencecode.com and braincodecenters.com. You can access us through there as well. Um, if you're curious on what neurofeedback is, you can absolutely reach out to me. Let's schedule a free discovery call. Let's get to know what you're experiencing so that we can see if neurofeedback is an option for you. Um, But as far as social media is concerned, Brain Code Centers, My Resilience Code are both excellent access points to learn more about neurofeedback. And if you want to follow me personally, it's just shred and shine.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you to everybody who listened to this episode with Sarah Murphy on neurofeedback. And um, we hope you tune into more episodes here on the code real soon. I know one thing that I'm going to do after this is I'm going to reach out to you and get my brain map scheduled. That's right. Because, you know, I'm all about continuing to take steps to have little improvement day by day, but you got to have a plan. You got to have an assessment in order to do that. So hope you guys have a great rest of your week, great rest of your month and we'll listen to you or we'll see you soon when you listen to more episodes of the code. Thanks so much.